This production is brought to you by All of the professions under this red umbrella of sex work come with their own set of laws, each as confusing and restrictive as the next, providing this perpetual anxiety to the vast scope of sexual service providers. But unlike other industries, sex workers have never been consulted directly as these laws were built, structured, and signed into effect. And those voices are determined to be heard. The last decade has seen a rise in online markets, which made conditions and many aspects of sex work safer and more lucrative. We also saw the rise of cybersex and adult content platforms that has made a palpable boom of even more sex workers active online today. In 2018, FOSTA-SESTA were signed into law as a way to combat online sex trafficking, but is in actuality driving constitutionally protected speech off the internet. The recent protests for sex workers' rights have been full of outcries for decriminalization, but removing criminal laws that target sex work would not stop all legal oppression of sex workers. Today, First Amendment lawyers Bob Corn Revere and Larry Walters join me to answer your questions about sex work and the law. The red umbrella became the global symbol for sex worker rights in 2001 when it was carried through the streets of Venice in protest against the abuse experienced by their community. Shot here in the heart of New York City on location at the Museum of Sex, I'm Laura Desiree and this is Red Umbrella Talk. The following discussion on First Amendment law and sex worker rights feature questions submitted by you, the general public, to our Red Umbrella Talk inbox and social media inboxes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. This is an incredible complicated world we're living in when it comes to sexy content online. So I can't wait to answer some of these questions with you, or at least hear your take on it. Uh, let's begin, though, with a little background on the law that you practice and what brought you into this area of interest. Bob, can we start with you? <laughs> when I decided to go to law school, I, I always knew I wanted to be a First Amendment lawyer. Part of it had to do with I started as a reporter, and so I was interested. But the main thing about being in First Amendment laws. I hate bullies. Protecting people and their right to express themselves is a fight against bullies. It really is, isn't it? It's a constitutional right. It is. Wow. Glad that you'll be here answering these. Larry, give us uh, your origin story, if you would. I started out uh, in kind of a boring banking insurance defense firm uh, doing litigation for construction companies and so forth. and. Uh, probably wouldn't be a lawyer now if I was still doing that. The uh, state attorney started prosecuting some video store owners in the late 80s in my hometown at that time in Daytona Beach, Florida. 
And uh, that, that didn't seem right. They were pulling movies off the shelves at the demand of the sheriff. Um, so I represented the video store owners uh, pro bono and helped them get all the cases dismissed. And uh, some of the producers in LA were watching those trials and saw the work that I did and said, yeah, we could, we could use you out here, somebody like that. And I was always uh, fascinated with computers, uh, even back into law school. And so when the internet hit and uh, my First Amendment practice kind of transitioned to the internet, it was a natural fit. Wow. So we're talking adult video store, not That's blockbuster. <laughs> yes. We're, we're talking mom and pop video stores yeah. that had a little back room. And uh, they would take these people out in handcuffs and uh, charge them with obscenity violations. And then they went the extra step of sending letters saying, and we also don't want these movies on your shelf, even some movies that were not X-rated, like Pink Flamingo. And that's where I said, yeah, there's got to be something wrong here. Let's, let's see if we can help out. And now, you know, the world of sex tech has just developed so much. And it's almost the area of the most fast-paced developments when it comes to online happenings, online marketplaces. I mean, porn itself is a $97 billion industry worldwide. And it's happening online. But we're seeing a rise in censorship. It's unbelievable. It impacts, it impacts everyone. And, and these questions have come in, and they cover a wide range of storylines within this conversation. Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. What is your interpretation of the First Amendment in relation to sexual content online? The interpretation is that the First Amendment protects it. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, among other things. And this is part of freedom of speech. Simple. Yeah. This is how it is, right? Like exactly. that. Exactly. Larry. It's very simple when you understand that the Constitution protects all speech. Uh, there's minimal exceptions for something like obscenity, but there hasn't been an obscenity case uh, since the last Bush administration. So, you know, that law may be relegated to the dustbin of history. So you start from the premise that all speech is protected and you don't exclude sexually oriented speech and you afford it the full protections of the First Amendment. Right. And there are two parts to that question is sexually oriented speech, which, which is protected, uh, at least has been for a bunch of decades, uh, but also the question of technology. Do we treat it differently because it's online. And the answer to that is no. I mean, the press, which is mentioned in the First Amendment, the only private business that is, was the new technology of the time. It was the one method of mass dissemination. And so for us, because we have new and more vast uh, means of communications, doesn't mean you protect speech less. Mm -hmm. It means you should protect it more. Right. And we need to update these amendments, let's be honest, <laughs> at this point, like we've just seen so many modes of communication and expressing ourselves evolve that it needs a facelift. Well, I'm not so sure it means we need to change the amendment as much as understand what it means, because there are a lot of people out there that don't. And once you understand that speech is protected, including mm -hmm. erotic speech, mm -hmm. uh, and that the technology is protected, that's really all you need to know. And then as the cases come up, you apply those understandings and you reach the conclusion that this should be protected. And yet it's so targeted. The current problem that we see is the issue of private censorship. So you see these you know, large tech companies, banks and so forth, censoring speech that they don't like or that they think is too risky. There you don't have a First Amendment issue, you have a societal issue. You know, how are we going to deal with the, the protection of freedom of speech and, and that inherent right that we all honor uh, when it's not specifically protected by the First Amendment? And that's where we get into these issues like FOSTA-SESTA that we may be talking about, where the government incentivizes private parties to do their dirty work and censor speech. Well, and, and there you've touched on it, too. I mean, there is a lot of censorship by private organizations, yes. but it's done with the government's finger on the scale. It's like, you should do this, shouldn't you? 
or else. There's always the or else lurking in the background. And that's what FOSTA is all about. It isn't just incentivizing uh, platforms to restrict speech more. It's scaring the hell out of them yeah, because exactly. they see the kind of liability they could face. Right. Oh, it's that pressure on all of it. Is there actual evidence or reports that FOSTA-SESTA has actually reduced sex trafficking? Because that was its initial mission statement. That was the initial mission statement, but that was always just PR. Right. Right. I mean... Also, who's going to argue it? (laughs) Right? If you say that's the mission, you're like, let's get behind this. That's right. You know, there are those who would claim there was a reduction, but that's crazy. I mean... The sites that were driven away, the legitimate sites, by fear of being uh, the target of a prosecution or a civil case under, under FOSTA, they restricted what people can post, but copycat sites came up all over the place. Uh, what really changed was that law enforcement to go after the real bad guys, the ones who are trafficking in children. Um, the ability of platforms to report about that was diminished greatly. And so the real problem, if anything, has gotten worse, whereas the kinds of things that they say Fawcett was targeted to prevent haven't been, haven't been diminished at all. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've slipped away further into the murky, dark waters where they used to have, you know, a marketplace that you could maybe trace them, maybe... Exactly. Yeah. And particularly when um, banks, credit card companies were allowing people to do transactions, uh, which left a trail where you could actually go after the bad guys. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. I would suggest that Asta system actually made sex trafficking worse. Yes. Uh, it has driven sex workers into the most dangerous form of sex work, which is street work, because it's taken away their ability to operate their own business, their own website, taken away their harm reduction tools, their bad date lists and reviews and, and information sharing. It, ha- it does nothing to actually punish sex traffickers. It doesn't target sex traffickers. It targets platform operators. And, it, right. and, and pushes them to censor speech and, again, drive sex workers into the most dangerous form of sex work. When we did a, an escorting episode in this series, and we heard from, from active uh, sex workers that said that, you know, the vetting process is everything. Right. Being able to and, do that. And that's actually one of the reasons why Larry and I are both involved in a case challenging the constitutionality mm-hmm. uh, of FOSTA, uh, because there are organizations that would have, they would host tools for sex workers to use to make their life safer and better. And it's really too risky for platforms to do that kind of thing now, which has made life worse for sex workers and has not diminished uh, trafficking of children. I, I think that there should be the website, the bad date list website that is official and isn't something that's hidden and at risk of going down somewhere. It's such a vital resource. That's just my opinion, you know, but I, I really believe that. Oh, it's an opinion we share. Yeah. yeah it's an important safety tool, and yeah. those tools have been largely taken away or driven overseas where they're harder to access and harder to use and you know, now we're left with an extremely dangerous environment for sex workers. And this yeah. is where so much of the protest has gone, and you hear this in these rallies that are happening more and more frequently, especially in cities like New York. There's so many sex worker rallies where this is the outcry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one. How does legislature like SESTA-FOSTA impact the lives and freedoms of people outside of sex work? This, <laughs> this one I love because so many people I speak to about FOSTA-SESTA you hear them say, well, that impacts sex workers, and I don't really want to get involved in the discussion. I don't understand right. it, nor do I look to understand it. That's right. That's one of the uh, tragic things about trying to fight this law, because 
if you look at it, and you know, I don't encourage anyone to spend that time uh, because uh, you'll come away uh, more baffled than enlightened. Uh, it's written in very broad and uncertain terms. You'll hear people defend the law saying, oh, we're only going after the really bad stuff, really terrible speech, but the law isn't written that way. And so, for example, one of our clients in the case challenging FOSTA is a massage therapist, a therapeutic massage therapist, but Craigslist will no longer carry personal ads or for services like that simply because they don't want to take the chance of being a target of either a criminal prosecution or a civil suit under FOSTA. And so people far afield from sex work uh, are really affected in what they can post online because of the government's thumb on the scale trying to change the incentives for what platforms can host. Terrifying. And, you know, FOSTA and SESTA has also inhibited our ability to have real discussions about human sexuality. You see all the changes to the community guidelines that have been imposed by the large online platforms, some of which have shut down completely certain sections, but most of which have imposed just tremendous censorship on even the ability to discuss human sexuality. And that comes with a cost to society if we're not able to discuss a, a fundamental human desire like sex, uh, you're gonna have more problems down the line. And that was the promise of the internet from the beginning. It was going to be the first amendment in its natural state. Everyone could say whatever they wanted. People didn't anticipate the rise of these large platforms that would have such ability to channel the conversation into you know, more uh, safe areas. But therein lies the, the problem. Everyone talks about big tech and all the power they have. But the, even the biggest companies, and in some ways particularly the biggest companies, have more to risk when the law steps in. So when yeah. they are the subject of potential liability under laws like FOSTA, then they're the ones that make changes, and it's understandable that, right. they, that they do as a matter of self-preservation. But we are the ones, the public, the people yeah. who want to speak on those platforms, are the ones that pay the price in terms of freedom of expression. Even educational content. Exactly. On platforms like, say, a YouTube or Vimeo, those streaming platforms, educational content about sexuality are targeted, flagged, removed, and then that account holder is also banned from the platform. Well, you know, that's, there's a long history there. Uh, I mean, it goes way back to the, the 19th century of medical textbooks being censored under anti-obscenity laws. Uh, and, and in particular, texts that would teach women about their own bodies, about birth control, about, uh, uh, about abortion. Medical doctors were prosecuted under the early obscenity laws in the 19th century, and we see that same tradition seeping into and infecting newer technologies like the internet. And when you're facing you know, up to 25 years in a federal prison, if you get something wrong and don't moderate your user content appropriately, you can understand why you know, large tech companies are drawing the line uh, very far away from whatever could be potentially risky. And so you see, you know, FOSTA says, well, you can't promote or facilitate prostitution, but nobody really knows what that means because A, those terms aren't defined. Right. Promote, facilitate, not even prostitution is defined. And so the, the boardrooms of these large companies are sitting there, you know, they're scratching their heads saying, okay, we better draw the line at no discussion of human sexuality in order to avoid, you know, substantial prison terms. Right, and if you try and figure out what it means, and this is what I was getting to earlier, by looking up how the courts have treated words like facilitate, it means to make easier, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so anything that can be seen as making the lives of sex workers easier, protecting their health, protecting their safety, could be seen as a violation for someone inclined to bring a prosecution or to bring a lawsuit 
under Foster. You, you mentioned, Larry, 25 years? Yes. You know, like 25 years? It's a 15-year uh, penalty for one violation, but if that violation involves five or more people, which every online platform known to man yeah. involves more than five people. Then it's an aggravated. It's, it's an case. aggravated felony, and it's 25 years in prison. That's outrageous. It certainly is. Yeah. Gosh, I'm learning a lot today with you gentlemen. Thank you. Oh, this is one that I get asked all the time by so many people who have experienced those shutdowns on their Instagram accounts or their YouTube pages. How do today's algorithms identify sex trafficking online? Sex trafficking, not just sexual content. <laughs> do they, do they uh, have that defining ability? Are they that sophisticated? They don't. Yeah, that, that's the simple answer. Uh, in order to determine whether somebody has been trafficked, you would have to get into their lives, get into their motivations, get into their circumstances, know who's pressuring them or defrauding them or forcing them to do something they don't want to do. How can an online platform that is processing terabytes of information on a daily basis ever know what the individual circumstances are behind any given you know, sex act or commercial uh, video or post or comment? It's impossible. But that's the standard that the government is holding these platforms to. People have rumored, uh, content creators have rumored that these algorithms can identify how much skin is visible in a posted image. I mean, is it wild to think that that might be what's going on there, to there some are, degree? <laughs> there are algorithms uh, that are currently being used in the, um, the industry and in online platform industries that will identify the age of individuals depicted, how much skin, whether they're weapons or drugs. They're very sophisticated, but they're also prone to over-moderation. Uh, anytime you program these algorithms, they will inevitably catch something that shouldn't be stopped, that shouldn't be censored in the realm of what they want to try to flag or stop. The platforms would rather have it that way, though, let's be honest. That 25 is years. The, yeah, that is the 25 course. years. Yes. Okay, with censorship expanding to all forms of sexuality online, where do you see sex on the internet 10 years from now? Well, sex is not going to go away no. on the internet or in life. Um, that's the good news. Um, how it will be affected is going to be greatly uh, influenced by how Congress reacts if it makes uh, things worse. If our lawsuit is successful in challenging FOSTA, hopefully that will make things better. To predict which way it'll go is really difficult. But one thing we can know for sure is that the law is not going to stop mm -hmm. people's desires to understand sexuality, to view it as both education, entertainment, part of their, uh, an essential part of their lives. So whether or not that means it goes to the dark web or to international sources that are available here. Uh, it will still be there in one form or another. I hope it doesn't go to the dark web. Don't <laughs> tell me that in 10 years from now, I'm going to need to buy a new router system to get it to the dark web to access any sexual content. I don't think that it necessarily will go in that direction, okay. but it certainly will be available there. And so if other avenues are shut off, uh, then that, that would be um, one option. It will still be there in one form or another. Just to toss this into the mix, we are also seeing this increase in content of a sexual nature, being like the internet boom of porn, and now even more so with these platforms like OnlyFans, places where everyone is becoming a content creator. So are you telling me in 10 years from now we're just going to forget that this moment mm. of, of boom happened? There's a, uh, an interesting project by uh, archive.org called The Way Forward Machine, and they've tried to predict what it's Love going it. to look like 10 years from now to be able to access sexually oriented content on the internet. 
And they're predicting a pretty dystopian, pessimistic uh, environment where you have to go through retina scans and birth certificates and ID cards just to get access to anything. And it'll be a very sanitized version of what we have now. You know, we're hoping that it doesn't get there, but there is an inclination worldwide to put up more barriers to accessing sexually oriented content and to uh, minimizing the, the extreme nature of some of the content that can be posted by creators on websites like you mentioned. Uh, so, you know, we're hoping that we can put a stop to this initial barrier that the government has thrown up and that has caused a lot of these platforms to censor speech. Um, but we have to be on guard because there's always the next one. They're always looking for a way to try to stop access to human sexuality on the internet. Right, and the other part of your question about individuals producing, I mean, that's the very in innovation of the internet, yeah. right? That it wasn't just those producers out there, whether in large companies or mom and pop companies, that would create content, but now anyone can create content and can post it online. And the question is whether or not platforms are going to have a legal environment in which they can post those uh, videos or other content that people produce without risking their very business mm. or their freedom. What about just an age gate on everything? I, 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 don't, I know that's not gonna solve all problems, but I'm like, what if we just kept it a wonderland that only exists for people of age? Can that not be a step forward towards uh, a, a healthier reality to all of it? Congress has tried that before, uh -huh. uh, and that was struck down uh, by the Supreme Court, or by the uh, Courts of Appeals as well. It wasn't severe enough? Well, no, no, the problem was that it, the, the law was poorly drafted. Uh, it was uh, not seen as effective. For one thing, people are going to find ways to fake their ages. Another problem of age-gating things is it tends to tell the, the pedophiles where all the young people are. Uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. So there are various problems in trying to craft a law like that. It would be something that uh, if they tried to do it again, you would have to look at very carefully for what kinds of unanticipated consequences that kind of law would create. And technology is solving some of those problems. In the past, Congress has tried to impose uh, age verification through something like credit cards or IDs and, and that are easy to fake. Now we have retina scans and biometrics on our phones, facial recognition. So you can actually tell who's behind the keyboard or the device. Right. And that didn't exist when some of these earlier laws were out there. So right. there, there are new potential options. But there's also the concern with ghettoizing adult content and saying, well, for that kind of stuff, you, we have to know who you are. And then that impacts your ability to interact anonymously. Well, and you Absolutely. also have to wonder about some of the broader social implications of where, you know, your devices know who you are, where you are, uh, they know your retina, they the know your fingerprints. We're talking about the world of 1984 at that point. Orwellian. With the political strength of the Christian right in the USA, do you predict that the government will try to regulate internet sex sites at some point? I feel like we've been talking about this uh, since we began. Yeah, well, yeah, when did it ever stop? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have adult content creators noticed an impact to their income because of censorship? I wonder if either of you have handled any of these cases. If so, what was the outcome? The biggest impact to sex workers and to even platform operators is the banking system. Yes. Uh, they have a stranglehold on the industry. They can decide who gets access, who can be in business, who can process payments, who can take payments, and they have very specific rules as to the type of content that can be allowed, uh, how people have to be vetted in terms of age verification for creators. And so we're seeing you know, people losing their bank accounts. We're seeing online platforms being cut off from uh, merchant processing services, and so that is the, the biggest impact. And yes, we are seeing that, but 
go try to apply to bank. Uh, the, the banks have all the cards and the agreements that you sign when you sign up for a checking account, you know, the bank is going to win on any termination issue. So it's very hard to fight the banking system right now. Another angle that I've been hearing, uh, especially from uh, individuals in the porn industry, is that, you know, back in the glory days of porn, of contract girls in the late 90s, uh, it was on the production company to handle the promotion and to handle, you know, the distribution, the sales and all that. Now that it's on the performer themselves, which is a wonderful opportunity in many ways, battling censorship has made it very challenging because out of nowhere, you know, you have a 2.5 million follower account. You can tell them new content is available, go buy it, but they get shut down. And then that opportunity. Right. right. And then they're on their own. And, yes. And you have to look for organizations that will get together to fight those kinds of fights. Right. But as you point out, it, it really is a much more complicated issue than just whether or not people are being affected in their incomes by censorship. Right. They're being affected by the whole changing nature of the world in which we live in, where you know, the advent of the internet, which made it possible for people to post things all over the place, also undermined established businesses. Uh, you know, the tube sites, mm -hmm. for example, undermined established production companies. It's hard to compete with free, mm -hmm. right? And it's the same lesson that the newspaper industry learned when their classified advertising base yes. was taken out by online classified ad sites. And so it's a really complicated world that we live in, but censorship is certainly an important factor there. And you guys choose to be a part of this complicated <laughs> conundrum of it all. I do, I have a question about crypto only because I'm starting to get involved with it, uh, the sale of NFTs. And you know, the more I speak to sex workers that are dealing with uh, their, their options for credit card processing being eliminated, they say, well, why don't we just have a sex worker bank and make it a crypto thing? Is crypto the future of, say, online uh, adult content or any kind of sexual transaction? For many years, I've been advocating that the adult industry and anybody that wants to be free from the stranglehold of the financial system needs to look at crypto, needs to understand it, needs to accept it. Uh, the platforms can, for example, offer specials or bonuses, et cetera, for people uh, to pay in crypto to get them used to transacting in that manner, uh, that is going to be one of the only solutions to this very complicated problem that the uh, credit card companies and the banking systems have created. Uh, crypto is not going away. Uh, it's getting more and more popular. And now we're seeing performers using it to, to create art, as you say, an NFT. So uh, it, it does provide some significant solutions. But we have also seen pushback where uh, prosecutors who are going after certain sites will point to the fact that they went to crypto as evidence of their guilt. And they'll try and argue that because they can't get normal credit card services mm -hmm. because they were cut off mm -hmm. through government pressure, and then they, to just as a matter of survival, they went to crypto, the prosecutors will point to that as evidence of guilt. For a moment there, I'm saying, hey, crypto is the 10-year plan, <laughs> right? But then it, Bob comes in with the reality th check. Well, there's always a push and pull. And yeah. we, we don't know what, what the outcome of the particular case I'm um, referring to, uh, what will happen in that case. But we do know that whenever there's an argument made on one side, there's going to be a counter-argument made on the other. Yeah. But the good part is that people are becoming more and more aware of crypto, and they're using it for everyday transactions. They're normalizing it. Right. And so prosecutors are going to have a tougher time saying, well, if you're using crypto, you must be engaged in illegal activities. Well, that's not the case, because we're using it to pay our water bill. Now. Right. So, there's more yeah. and more regular transactions right. happening exactly. through crypto. Some exactly. more of that. Yes. Gentlemen, how are sex workers perceived by the legal system, the police, the courts? 
I mean, sex worker, we could make it any of the many professions under the red umbrella. Um, is there a general opinion? What happens among those who are trying to crack down is that they tend to mash all of those categories together and call everything human trafficking, mm -hmm. right? And so they equate prostitution with trafficking. They, they associate any kind of sex work with prostitution, and therefore it's related to trafficking. And so for those who want to crack down, it's all just one thing, as opposed to, as you know, a diverse array of people involved in all kinds of activities, many, if not most of them, not restricted under the law, uh, others that are, others that are subject to uh, uh, reform movements, and others that are quite properly the subject of law, as we were talking about child, uh, child sex trafficking earlier. But I think among those who advocate censorship and restrictions, they tend to see them all as the same thing. Yeah, that conflation is, is very difficult, but what I have seen is that as a result of FOSTA-SESTA and some of the challenges that the sex worker industry has endured, they have found their voice. Uh, they are together, they're cohesive, they now know that they have to organize together and get messages out in, a, in a, a proper and effective manner. And so I'm encouraged to see that, you know, we are now seeing that pushback, we're seeing organization, we're seeing decrim movements throughout the United States. And uh, if FOSTA if did anything right, it was to give sex workers their voice. Were sex workers consulted on? No, no, they were not. <laughs> no. The, the well, government went to uh, anti-trafficking organizations and you know, government consultants. Of course, the, the one, set of people that you're going to impact with a law should have a voice, should have had input, um, but did not. The restriction on prostitution wasn't even a big part of FOSTA-SESTA until towards the end. It was, in fact, a, a sex trafficking bill until uh, during a committee meeting, you know, some of the representatives got the bright idea of, well, as long as we're regulating sex trafficking, we might as well prohibit you know, consensual sex work as well. And, and that's where it went off the rail. By throwing that added part in an, at, the, at the end, it made the combined bill the worst of both worlds and um, has had a much broader impact. Well, how can, how can sex workers not feel that it's a war against them when this is the volume it's been dialed up to, right? Play with me on this one. <laughs> how should the government go about differentiating sex trafficking and consensual sex work in online spaces? Well, it's been a long time since I've worked for the government, and yeah. so I'm usually not in the business of trying to craft laws for them. Right. But for one thing, if you're going to have a definition, it has to be very precise rather than using broad terms like facilitate prostitution. And for that matter, if you're going to uh, even create consensual sexual relations for money as, as a crime, as you know, has, has traditionally existed in the states, but now does under the federal government as well, you really need to define what you mean by that as well. But again, it was not in the interest of those who crafted the law in being precise. And so uh, I would suggest that if you want to target trafficking, you really have to define what you mean by trafficking rather than just throwing out this broad net. Right, clear definitions. Yes. Yeah. And clear expression of when somebody can be found liable. Right now we have this debate in the courts about whether or not a platform has to have actual knowledge of sex trafficking versus constructive knowledge of sex trafficking. In other words, should they have known that sex trafficking was occurring? And some courts are actually saying, well, that's enough. You just didn't do enough to stop it, even if you didn't know it was happening actually on your platform. And so that needs to be specific in any statute. You mean if you were statute. suspicious of it? If you, if you didn't do enough or, to stop or, it. Or if you didn't do enough to find out it was happening. And 
when the law was being passed, and even as we have argued this case against FOSTA, uh, the defenders of law will say, well, of course it means that you have to have actual knowledge of an actual illegal sex act. The law doesn't work out that way. The law is not written that way. And so out in practice, when people are actually taking cases, the standard that they are arguing when they want to win the case is that it's just enough to have, uh, as, as Larry said, constructive knowledge or should have known that something was going on. Um, and so, that, again, it gets back to the specificity yes. of the law. Yes. This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, dick pics. <laughs> there is an incredible amount of this content going to inboxes right now, going to DMs on platforms like Instagram. Is there any law around this? Is there any way to stop it where it's not wanted or press charges in some cases. I know that some individuals are very impacted and affected by receiving this content. Well, there, there are laws against harassment mm -hmm. uh, in, in every state. And, and uh, that's the kind of thing that I think would fall generally under those laws. But there's also an increasing growth of laws, most states have them now, against um, revenge porn, yes. which is, the laws were prompted by a very different kind of situation. But uh, so, for example, someone gets a dick pic in their inbox. Unsolicited, let's specify. An, an unsolicited, an unsolicited uh, dick <laughs> yes. pic. They show it to their mother think, look what this creep sent me. Um, under some of these revenge porn laws, they're written so broadly that even sharing that picture without consent could be seen as a violation of that state law. Mm -hmm. Wow. What, what is it in New York? Do you know? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know that platforms like the tube sites now require, like, like the porn hubs of the world, they now require that everyone depicted in the content has to have uh, signed waiver or, or clearance to be a part of it. So that has been, I'm guessing, an effort to combat something like revenge porn. Um, but how is that tackled? How is that deciphered? Well, revenge porn is a broader term. And, yeah. and it uh, initially got that name from the phenomenon of, say, a spurned boyfriend is angry at, at his ex, and so he will post the intimate pictures that they had taken together, uh, send it to friends and family, or, or um, uh, post it to sites, basically to get back at the ex-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. The difficulty with legislating that is that uh, so many people share their intimate moments online. Uh, their pictures that were taken, in most cases, consensually at the time, and the question is sorting that out so that only people who are really the guilty parties are targeted by the law, and not just people who are sharing pictures. And I gave you the example earlier where someone gets an unsolicited picture, they didn't want it, but they show it to people to try and get some sort of help. Uh, and technically, they're violating the law. And I've worked in a case specifically where a woman received photos of her fiance having sex with another woman and some other uh, just topless images that were sent. And she used that to defend herself when she was accused of being crazy. Because the law was so broadly written, she was convicted under it. Wow. And uh, the Illinois Supreme Court actually upheld the law under the Constitution, saying that it wasn't too broad. So you know, there are problems out there to be solved, but there are solutions that in many cases can be worse than the problem. So going back to your situation of you know receiving these unsolicited pics, if you go and show your girlfriends or your spouse or even law enforcement in some cases 
that could result in a bigger problem from you, for you than just simply having gotten the images because it could be a violation of these revenge porn laws. Yeah, it, it ends at my inbox. <laughs> so we have that clear. Yeah, that ends at the Harry inbox. Truman. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so very much. That might actually wrap things up for me. I would say all questions answered. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy to help. This was a joy, a learning experience. I hope everyone else watching, listening, that you learned something today too. Uh, in support of this wonderful community, the Red Umbrella Talk production has made a charitable donation to our friends at the Black Sex Workers Collective. Thanks so much, and we will see you back here real soon. <laughs>